John chapter 14. This is the upper room discourse now. Whenever I am dealing with these verses, chapters 14 through 17, I'm always reminded of a little paperback book that I have, a commentary on these three chapters. It's called The Inner Sanctuary. And I think that's an appropriate title because this is um, an intimate time between Christ and his disciples. Many things that he's disclosed to them that they don't understand. And here is, in a sense, his final word to them. This is Christ speaking now in verse 1, where he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 14. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention to this very familiar designation, one of the I am designations for Christ that we find in verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Christ says. And of all the I am designations that we find for Christ, and there are a number of them, some time ago we went through them all, studied each one. I'm thinking now just off the top of my head, where Christ says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. I am the door uh, through which if any man enter, he has eternal life. I am the light of the world. 
But then we come to this one. Well, I should mention one other, just strictly speaking, the I am statement when Christ says before the Jews, before Abraham was, I am. And there is a clear designation of Christ identifying himself as Jehovah God. I am that I am. We've been looking at uh, uh, the names of Christ in our prayer meetings. We have covered that name Jehovah. I am that I am. And Christ, who utilizes those uh, I am designations, certainly reveals himself to be one with his Father. But like I say, of all the I am designations we see for Christ, the one that's before us just now represents what might be considered to be the most comprehensive as well as the most comforting. Comprehensive in that it encompasses three distinct elements, each one deep and profound as well as practical, and comforting in the sense that it is this threefold designation for Christ that is given as the follow-up to Christ's exhortation in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. What is it that can keep our hearts from being troubled? Well, it is simply this, that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And my, if you've got a handle on that, and if those truths uh, have any lodging in your heart, uh, you'll go a long way in soothing a troubled heart. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about the condition of a troubled heart. He writes, Heart trouble is the commonest thing in the world. No rank or class or condition is exempt from it. No bars or bolts or locks can keep it out partly from inward causes and partly from outward causes, partly from the body and partly from the mind, partly from what we love and partly from what we fear, the journey of life is full of trouble. Even the best of Christians have many bitter cups to drink between grace and glory. Even the holiest saints find the world a valley of tears." And in what immediately follows Christ's exhortation about a troubled heart, we find the antidote to a troubled heart. The antidote is faith. You believe in God, believe also in me. And when it comes to providing substance about what we're to believe concerning Christ, here's what you're to believe, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. What I'd like to do this afternoon for just a few moments is to look briefly at each of the elements of this threefold designation, I am for Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, a very simple analysis then this afternoon. We'll look at each element. We begin with the way. I am the way, he says. And when you think of the way... Usually what comes to your mind is a destination. You're on your way to somewhere. How do I get to downtown Indianapolis from here? Well, you go this way. 
Go out to the end of the driveway, turn left on Franklin Road, go to the corner and take another left on Brookville Road, etc. And that becomes the way to a destination. Interesting to note in the context of this designation of Christ that he has a couple of things in mind that you could call destinations. Look at verse 2, John 14. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, many take the reference here to be of heaven. And heaven certainly is our destination as believers in Christ. But one commentator takes a more far-reaching view of the meaning of the Father's house. He interprets Christ as saying, and I quote now, The universe is the dwelling place of my Father. All is his house. Whether on earth or in heaven, we are still in his habitation. In that vast abode of God, there are many mansions. The earth is one of them. Heaven is another. Whether here or there, we are still in the house, in one of the mansions of our Father, in one of the apartments of his vast abode. This we ought continually to feel and to rejoice that we are permitted to occupy any part of his dwelling place. Nor does it differ much whether we are in this mansion or another. It should not be a matter of grief when we are called upon to pass from one part of this vast habitation of God to another. I'm reminded as I look at these words of uh, an impressive testimony I heard some while back was Tim Yarborough, an elder in uh, our Alabama church who alerted me to this. And uh, I always regret that I can't remember the man's name. But there was a wealthy landowner in an African nation. I forget the nation. I'm pretty sure it wasn't South Africa. But a similar situation. It was a nation that was racked with unrest, uh, especially over... Um, racial uh, discrimination or the perception of that. And as it turned out, one form of government displaced another. And as a result of that, there were many wealthy landowners who were actually turned out of their mansions, if you will. And those mansions were given to someone else who really had no claim to them at all. Basically, they were robbed. And this one particular man... A Christian, he did not let that get to him. Uh, He did not let that bother him because his attitude was that life in this world is a stewardship and it's God's prerogative to move us from one place to another. And this man noticed that the people that had been given his estate had no clue how to run it. And they, they were doomed to run it into the ground if they didn't get any help. So this man went and offered his services to the people who had been handed his estate by the government. And he taught them how to run it. And he did the same for several others as well. When I first heard the story about this man, the thought that struck me is, there's a man who's not glued to this world. 
There's a man who recognizes life as a stewardship for God. And it is God's prerogative to move us from one place to another. And maybe the next place isn't near as uh, impressive by worldly standards as the previous. But be that as it may, it is God. The universe belongs to God. This earth belongs to God and everything in it. And so we find Christ saying to his disciples, he was about to leave them, but he was going to another part of the vast dwelling place of God. I shall still be in the same universal habitation with you, he's saying, still in the house of the same God, and I'm going for an important purpose to fit up another abode for your eternal dwelling. One of the reasons I like this interpretation from this commentator is that it presents Christ to us not only as the way to heaven, but also as the way to God's will as his will pertains to what we do in this world. In this scheme of things, Christ is the way to your calling in life or your vocation. Christ is the way to your future spouse. Christ is the way to where you're supposed to live. He's the way to what school or college you may attend. Christ is the way to the service you're supposed to render to God. I've never forgotten the way this verse came to my own heart following a long struggle over where I was to go to serve Christ. My training had been completed. I'd finished the academic course in the seminary, so I was in the waiting mode. And every time I opened my Bible and went to prayer, I always did so with this question uh, in my mind expressed on my lips, Lord, where am I supposed to go? Where am I supposed to plant a church? I won't go into all the details except to say that following a prolonged struggle in which I was misreading God's direction, I eventually came across this verse and the impact it had on me was profound. Basically, I came to the realization that my focus had been wrong. I was so consumed with the place of my service that I had practically forgotten the person that I was supposed to serve when the Spirit of God conveyed the message to my soul that Christ is the way. And once that verse was brought home to my heart with a fresh power, I was able to leave the matter with the Lord. It's as if he said to me, forget about where you're supposed to go. Christ is the way. So seek him and enjoy him. And for the time being, serve him just where you are now. The knowledge that Christ is the way, in that case, brought tremendous relief to my soul. But would you notice under this designation for Christ that in terms of destiny, he is the way and the only way to something else. Notice again the words of verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And notice here that the destiny now is to God himself. Even the Father. 
Jesus is the way to God, in other words. He's the way to reconciliation to God. He's the way to communion with God. He's the way through which we can glorify and enjoy God forever. And we should make much of the fact that the proclamation announces that he is the only way. He does not say, does he? Something that the world says and something that the world does all their power to try to impress upon you that he is one of many ways. He, he, no, he says, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Peter put it this way before the elders of Israel in Acts 4 and verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Paul put the matter to Timothy this way, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now of all the things that brings reproach to Christianity today, perhaps it is the exclusivity of Christ when it comes to salvation, or when it comes to knowing God. Christ's exclusivity is as politically incorrect as you can be these days, but when you understand who he is and what he paid to bring about salvation, then it doesn't become hard at all to affirm that he is the way and he is the only way to God or to heaven or to salvation Jesus, then, is the way. But think now for a moment that not only is he the way, he is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, our text says. And this is another designation for Christ that flies in the face of the culture of our world. And not just in modern times, but in ancient times as well. You remember when Christ stood before Pontius Pilate when he was being interrogated by Pilate shortly before his crucifixion? Pilate asked him if he was a king. Art thou a king then? John eighteen thirty seven. To which Christ answers, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. We could spend a lot of time, I suppose, expounding what Christ says about the truth. He bore witness to the objective truths of his word. The prophecies that were that very moment being fulfilled. He bore witness to them. But there's also a subjective element to truth in Christ's statement. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice, he says. He's not making reference now to an audible voice. He is making reference to an inward perception of his voice that simply convinces you in the depth of your soul that he is true and what he says is true. So you have subjective and objective truth coming together in Christ but the thing I want you to see from Pontius Pilate that is so much like these modern times 
is his reply in the next verse. This is in John 18 and verse 38. And uh, listen to this and ask yourself, boy, doesn't Pontius Pilate sound like a modern man? Pilate saith unto him, what is truth? Doesn't Pilate sound like he could get on just fine in our world today? What is truth? Pilate was certainly wise beyond his years, wasn't he? Here we find him expressing the same enlightened wisdom that characterizes the 21st century by saying, or at least implying in his philosophical statement, that there's no such thing as truth. That seems to be the one and only absolute that is allowable in our day and age. The absolute truth that states that there is no absolute truth. It's amazing to me how many professing Christians would affirm the same thing that Pontius Pilate affirms. I remember a Barna study that I read a number of years ago. I could hardly believe it when I read it. I still wonder if the people that were asked the question really understood what they were being asked. But he conducted a study years ago that polled evangelicals and asked the question whether or not they believed in such a thing as absolute truth. And I forget the percentage. I know it was a majority that said they didn't believe in absolute truth. I remember scratching my head and thinking to myself, do they really know what they're saying? Do they really understand what absolute truth even means? And of course, where there's no absolute truth, then there's no law and there's no sin. But Christ identifies himself as the way and the truth. And because of this designation, you and I can have confidence in some things. We can have confidence that God is the creator. We can have confidence that he rules and reigns. And we can have confidence that Christ truly is the savior of sinners. And that his promises are, to borrow a phrase from Paul, yea and amen. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. 2 Corinthians 1.20 Several years ago, we studied the book of Acts in our morning services. I think I brought this up even most recently as well. I suggested that the book of Acts was in fact the Gospel of Luke, volume 2. He's the author of both books. And because Acts is Luke volume 2, I made the point that we can bring forward a very clear purpose statement in Luke's gospel that could also be applied to the book of Acts. That statement is found in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. The blessing of certainty. Isn't that the crying need of the hour? Nobody is certain about anything in our day. Our educational system makes it their single point of dogma that you can't be sure of anything. 
There are no such things as moral absolutes. There is no such thing as absolute truth. And where there is no certainty, there can also be no security. How can there be? You can't count on anyone or anything to be certain. It's no wonder we live in a culture that says, lock your door, then fasten the deadbolt, then set the alarm system, and make sure you know where the bullets are stored for your shotgun. This world is so unsafe because there's no certainty, and where there is no certainty, you have shifting values. Where you have no certainty, you have no trust. And when there is no trust, you have to constantly be on your guard. But because Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, the Christian has been saved from this dangerous and unsettling morass by finding something that is certain. In finding Christ, he's found a sure place to cast the anchor of his soul. He has a sure hope because he has a sure foundation and a sure salvation in Christ. So he is the way, he is the truth, and finally and briefly, he is the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now you could look at these designations and analyze them this way. The way pertains to destiny. The truth pertains to certainty. The life pertains to vitality. John 17 and verse 2, this is Christ speaking to his Father in prayer. As thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is eternal life. And when Christ defines eternal life in that statement, I think he is describing more than just everlasting life. He's saying more than just how durable life is. He is speaking about a quality of life. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Which means then that to know Christ is to have the highest quality of life that's available in this world. We know, of course, that Christ is the source of life. John chapter 1, verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is the grounds for life, especially when we think of everlasting life. It is grounded in who Christ is and what Christ has done. He is the purpose for life. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And the reason we can glorify and enjoy Him forever is on account of Jesus Christ and our salvation in Him. He is the one that gives meaning to life. Life basically is to be lived in worshiping Him and in serving Him. He is the one that gives fullness 
and satisfaction to life. John 10 and verse 10, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Oh, we are supposed to reign in life by one Jesus Christ, by receiving his grace, by receiving the gift of righteousness. We have a spiritual vitality about us. We have a sense of purpose that is ever with us. And if there is one thing that is disturbing today, especially as it pertains to young people, is to observe how many of them have no sense of purpose. What are you doing in this world? How did you get here? What are you doing here? Where are you going from here? What are you supposed to be doing while you're here? And it's amazing how few can provide an answer for that. To those that know Christ, there is a ready answer at hand. I live for my Redeemer. I had forfeited life. I was worthy of hell. But he rescued me by interposing his precious blood. And then he rose from the dead. And then he opened my heart to perceive who he is and what he's done. And I responded to the gospel. And now I owe him everything. I live for him. I serve him. I enjoy him. I have a sense of purpose in him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. John 6, 35, and with this I'll close. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Again, an indication that the fullness, the vitality, and purpose in our lives is satisfied in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So I trust you'll take these simple devotional thoughts. Very easy, you know, to read that verse and quote that verse. But boy, that's a verse that you ought to um, park on for a time and contemplate uh, the incredible meaning behind these designations. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. We thank thee that in him we have the sure hope of heaven, we have the sure uh, experience of his abiding presence. We thank thee that in him we can have confidence because he is the truth. We thank thee that in him we have the sure hope of everlasting life and we find purpose and meaning to our lives in this world. Help us then, Lord, to live in the light of this designation for Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.